Hello, and welcome to the 12th episode of Coffee and Cocktails. I'm your host, Dr. Ann Wand. On today's show, we'll be talking with Dr. Alex Green of the University of Essex and Dr. Marcus Poch of the European Parliament and Heidelberg University to discuss the role of academic impact both within and outside of academia. Thank you both for joining us. As per usual, we'll start off by having you tell us what drink you're having for the show, followed by a little bit about yourself. Alex, would you like to start? Sure. Well, I wish I had a cocktail in front of me, but unfortunately I have to drive later. So I've got a good old builder's brew in front of me today. Nothing wrong with that on a Saturday. And could you tell us a bit about yourself, Alex? Sure. So I'm a historian of contemporary Britain, but um, I only came into academia relatively recently. So my earlier career was in various kind of policy and government relations type roles. And uh, the latest of those was working in a university executive. And I kind of worked out that I was always asking the historical questions. Um, How do we come to be in this position? What's the history of that decision? And that's what got me interested in the kind of uses or application of history in decision making. And at that point, I did my PhD on using history and public policy. And from there, I sidestepped uh, into being a a historian, academic historian. So I think that previous career has really informed the kind of uh, history that I do. So I'm really interested in um, how history is put to use, how it matters in uh, contemporary society and the ways in which we can use historical thinking to uh, improve the quality of our debate, the quality of our decision making today. Thank you for that. And Marcus, what are you drinking on this fine Saturday? Well, I'm having a glass of sparkling water, so fairly boring, I'm afraid. What is sparkling? (laughs) There's nothing wrong with that. And uh, could you also tell us a bit about yourself? Yes, certainly. So I'm originally from Austria. I also studied history and political science in Austria and later in Germany uh, before doing my PhD at European University Institute in Florence, Italy, followed by a postdoc position at Helsinki University in Finland. And since 2011, I have been working at the European Parliament where I'm responsible for culture and education policies uh, within the Directorate General for Internal Policies of the Union. And there my task and that of my team is to provide expertise and institutional policy advice for the members and the president of the parliament in all matters related to culture and education policies, ranging from issues connected with European historical memory and European identity to also very practical questions such as the concrete design of the future Erasmus program or the recognition of diplomas in Europe. And in parallel, I continue to work also in academia, namely at Heidelberg University, Um, as well as the Heidelberg Academy of Sciences and Humanities with my research and teaching mainly focused on modern political constitutional history, political theory, as well as democracy studies. Thank you very much for that. Um, I suppose uh, we should start off with one of a series of questions since um, academia, kind of this idea of impact we've talked about in the past, um, can, and before the show, uh, can be quite intimidating, especially for those um, who are not quite sure what that looks like. Um, and as we've discussed, one of the many concerns academics face when trying to obtain funding or when using their skill sets outside of academia is this idea or concept of impact and how it can be exported to various fields depending on one's profession. Given that both of you have backgrounds in history but have also worked in policy, I know you've already discussed this a bit at length, but how have you been able to transfer your skill sets in academia into policy-related positions or vice versa? And what sort of impact have you been able to achieve through academic and non-academic settings? Uh, Starting with Alex, please. Sure. Um, 
As I said, I think often the kind of thinking process that, that you, you're using in settings like um, governments are actually quite historical in nature to start with. Um, if you want to understand how um, a particular policy has evolved, if you want to think about what the options are for the future, you use um, techniques that historians use all the time, which is sort of thinking about change over time, trying to understand the context uh, in which something has arisen. So I think um, for me, it was quite a natural transition. Uh, and I think it was more about trying to bring out what the historical qualities, what the historical tools are that we use when we're thinking about a decision. Um, there was, of course, this very famous article uh, by Carl Becker about every man his, his own historian, which is now quite old. But um, I think the, the basic point that um, we all use historical reasoning in every in every kind of scenario in our lives, in every kind of uh, decision-making context, all our reasoning is kind of his, essentially historical in nature. So I think for me, it was more about trying to um, focus in on what those tools are and understand them a bit more. Um, that that really became the basis of my um, historical research. So I think politicians, policymakers all use history anyway. Uh, the question is about, how, you know, how well and how informed those processes are. And that's, for me, um, one of the roles that um, academic historians or, or public historians, however you want to put it, can make, is to help those processes work better, to help inform and shape those processes uh, so they're as, um, as, as kind of rigorous and as disciplined as possible. Fantastic. And Marcus, how about yourself? Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, I think I've always felt that my work in policy has largely benefited from the skills that I obtained in academia, especially the capacity to analyze huge amounts of information and data and distill the essence thereof, the ethos of trying to base arguments on evidence and facts rather than feelings and emotions, and also the ability to locate contemporary political developments in wider historical contexts. At the same time, however, I also feel that my policy work has had a positive bearing on my academic work. More than before, for example, I understand the need to sometimes also think out of the box um, and one's own disciplinary boundaries to aim for a holistic understanding of problems and challenges and to be able to present even very complex issues in layman's terms at times. Maybe as far as the impact um, more particularly is concerned, I sense a bit of like what I call two versions of frustration. In the, in the academic world, impact, that was at least my perception, is often not very visible and somewhat subdued. Uh, but for that very reason gives you also some peace of mind in the sense of the effects of whatever you do may only be able to do limited direct harm. While in policy making, the impact uh, one can potentially have is huge and often direct with consequences for a huge number of people. But with that potentially huge and direct impact comes also a sense of uneasiness, especially since decisions often have to be taken fairly rapidly and on the basis of only limited information and evidence. And that in a way goes against what you know um, I learned as an academic, what you should do. That's very interesting. That, that idea of... Um Sort of the two versions of frustration, I think, is a really <clears throat> interesting point. Um, I do think, um, at least within the academic setting, there is this idea of sort of being in a protected bubble. And if you're in that protected bubble, especially if it's a cloudy bubble and you can't really see out, um, you kind of don't have to necessarily worry about there being an impact as long as there's no effect within the bubble. But I think once that jar is moved and you realize that there's going to be a continual repercussion of issues, um, I think that that in and of itself 
um, I would imagine puts more pressure on the policymaker to really think about the long-term effects of the actions that they create. And I think in that sense, um, it can be quite, I would imagine, quite intimidating. What would you say? Yes, that's. I think you have captured it very well. So indeed, that's that's exactly also what what I often perceive for myself, mm. working somehow in between these two worlds. That mm. it's not always very easy to navigate because the logic of these two worlds is quite quite different. Yeah, and Alex, what would what would you say? In a sense, it's an, in a way we could see it as a bit of a shame, though, that you might want to be to exist within the bubble and to not see. Uh, the wider interest and mm. demand for um, the skills and insights that you have. Because I think actually one of the most um, animating and inspiring aspects of historical research is realising there are people out there who are interested in your findings. So in a sense, I'd rather have, if we, if we use Seymour Mandelbaum's term, an interested questioner in mind as I'm you know, pursuing my research, um, because that gives it a sense of purpose, a sense of its its kind of value and traction in the wider world. So, but that perhaps I got that attitude from having worked in policy, in the sense that there is always an audience, there is always someone who's asking for uh, the particular analysis that you're producing. But I think that's also makes for a more animated kind of historical research too. So mm. perhaps it's useful to actively seek to break out of those bubbles because. Um, I think it makes for a more vibrant type of research as well. Absolutely. And speaking about purpose, you had mentioned before the show, Alex, about how academic work, you described academic work as having what you referred to as public purpose. Could you explain to us uh, in a little bit more detail what you mean by that? Yeah, sure. Um, I I formulated this concept really because um, public history has provided a kind of an umbrella term for thinking about history in the wider world, history beyond academia. But for me, that wasn't quite satisfying enough because I, it makes um, it makes those public audiences kind of p- rather passive recipients of the stuff that's done inside universities. So we, kind of, we conduct our research um, and then we pass it on, we disseminate it in various forms, whether that's through the medium of kind of historical films or uh, museum exhibitions or you know, heritage walks. But the interests of those audiences don't affect the way in which that original research is conducted. And the reason I wanted to draw attention, um, sorry, the the reason I like the term public purpose is because it, it drew attention to the motivations that sit behind research itself. Hmm. So rather than just thinking about dissemination, it also invites us to rethink the, the, why, the why we're doing research and for whom and for what purpose. So by, by introducing the word purpose, it asks us to reflect on the reasons we pursue this research in the first place. Um, I can't really pretend to have, uh, you know, invented any of this myself. I was really inspired by um, some of the um, public disciplines, such as public sociology, which really invited us to think about those core motivations. So this idea of sociology for what, for whom, was something I then turned back on my own discipline to try and think, you know, history for what, for whom, to really turn that lens back on our own practice. Um, And I think that's a bit more fruitful than simply thinking about, well, how do we pass this on? How do we disseminate uh, the research that we've already conducted? Um, That is Sorry, that wasn't very good. No, no, I think (laughs) think it's good because it does tie into some things that, you know, I think we wanted to discuss anyway. Um, But before we tie into that, um, Marcus, do you have anything to add? I mean, I should say that I very much share Alex's understanding of, of public purpose and what, what it may do and should do. 
And I personally consider it essential that our work has indeed a purpose beyond the academic in the narrow sense of the word. It is fatal if academia degenerates into a l'art pour l'art, to use the French expression, and if academics do not even make an effort to reach out beyond what can easily become indeed an ivory tower. I mean, the ways to do that are obviously manifold, but I think what really counts is the preparedness to go for it in one way or another. I think that's a really good way to put it. And I would add to that, that actually all historical work, all scholarship does have an audience in mind. It's just that often we don't um, think clearly about that. I mean, even if you're only seeking to address the handful of scholars in a very you know, specialised subfield, you're still thinking about there being an audience. So I don't think this is necessarily a radical departure. And what I was trying to do in my book was really to challenge my fellow historians to to realise that all scholarship is essentially applied. All scholarship has an audience. Why don't we think in broader terms about what those audiences, what those purposes, what those applications might be? Mm. So to think about this as having an absolute integrity right to the core of, you know, of academic practice, rather than it being something that's kind of bolted on or done, dumbed down that awful phrase um, that people unfortunately still use when talking about public history, that somehow it's there's real research over here and there's you know, public history, dumbed down, simplified, um, you know, disnified history on the other side. Actually, I think that's a really unhelpful division and it, it blinds us. It, it, it narrows our vision uh, and rules out certain times of application, certain forms of audiences in a way that I think is really unhelpful. I think that's uh -huh. interesting. I mean, I think also one thing to keep in mind, and I know that I, I keep this in mind for my own book, is this idea that each of us have a story that we want to tell. You know, and it might initially be uh, for a certain group of people. But the idea at the end of the day is that you want anybody to be able to pick it off a shelf or find it online because you want to make sure that if there is an interest out there, hey, I've created something. And if you're interested, I'd love to share it with you. And I think just that in and of itself should be an incentive to want to make sure that it's as clear as possible, that it's as relevant as possible, and that there's, like you said, application to it as well. It's not just something in a box but it's something that could you know be used for other fields as well so um if we could actually i'm going to skip around a little bit since we've been talking about um the idea of for what and for whom and if i could alex um you wrote a blog post for the university of essex last month entitled to see research and impact is interwoven in is, seems to enrich both and in it you state the following quote in academia Impact isn't just an agenda for funders and institutions. To see research and impact as interwoven seems to me to enrich both. To conceive of a research project with an interested questioner in mind gives the project purpose and energy. There's a way of reframing impact in a way that speaks to the core concerns of scholarship. Borrowing from public sociology asking for what for whom of our own fields is an act of self-conscious inquiry for which we can all learn. And based on that statement, what benefits do you think academics could have in the long term if they were to really understand why the impact factor is necessary for research, not just as the end goal we've talked about as being tacked on, but also as a starting means for departure? And to follow through on that, how could research impact have a greater effect on society? Yeah, sure. So I think it's it's important to emphasize that obviously there's a very particular meaning for the term impact in the UK context 
with the research excellence framework. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, and could you explain a little bit what the REF means for those who aren't uh, part of the British academic sure. system? Okay, so this is an exercise that is used to um, determine the distribution of um, block grant research funding. So it's an assessment uh, ostensibly of research quality. And in the last cycle, which was in 2014, alongside um, assessment of particular research outputs and the research environment, we were also assessed on impacts. This is about the kind of the transformational impact of your research um, on, on audiences beyond academia. And uh, units of assessments so that would often, you know, for example, a history department would have to, have to submit a number of impact case studies which demonstrated that transformational change. Um, so there is a very particular meaning in the UK context, but I think we can also think of impact beyond that particular process um, because I think it's useful as a kind of general idea in terms of the kind of application of research which broader contraction or, 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 um, or impact on society. Um, so for me, I think um, my work has really been about um, the influence that your um, audience or your collaborative partners, whoever they may be, on the design of the research itself. So rather than um, identifying audiences who may, may potentially be interested after your research has already been conducted, is how would your research look different if you worked with those audiences, with those partners, right from the outset? Uh, and I think research looks very different once you take that approach. So if I were to use my most recent example, which has been working with um, a network of business archivists, um, the outputs from that process, co-designed with those archivists, co-written with those archivists, are far more usable, relevant um, and, and helpful to those audiences because they themselves have been involved in the design process. So I would not have produced, um, what I produced was a set of guidance materials with them to facilitate academic collaborations between business archivists and academics, but also some research outputs. They look different. I think they're better. I think they are um, more, is, the audiences are more able to assimilate them because they've been, they've gone through that collaborative process. Um, I would not have come across that project. I would not have pursued it in that way without those partners involved. So I think it's just about shifting our perspective a bit to recognize that other professions, other groups, other disciplines have a claim on us, can um, work with us, they bring their own forms of expertise, and our research can be better, richer, hold more potential if we take that those those forms of expertise seriously in the research process. So that for me is the opportunity is to just pursue avenues we would never have found otherwise to uh, collaborate with groups we would never otherwise have access to to reach you know to use materials we wouldn't otherwise find to open up new routes for research. So that I think that's the opportunity um, if we can bring people into the process itself rather than seeing them as 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 kind of end users or end audiences. End users. Um, yeah, I think that's actually a very good point. Uh, Marcus, do you have anything to add? Yeah, indeed, because again, I would very much agree with what Alex said, but maybe just adding that when talking about impact factor, I really think it's it's central to distinguish at what level we talk about impact factor. If it's really a key element of research funding, of a factor for deciding on 
whether you can keep your post at the university or not, I have really mixed feelings about it because um, it's often a very instrumental understanding of impact. Um, and by trying to define what the impact is, you not only steer research into very particular directions and you see certain problems of that kind, not just in the UK context, but also the European context with European research funding, funding having created um, like a clear tendency in, in research as far as timing is concerned, but also what is understood as impact. Having said that, however, I think that placing impact as central to any research uh, is is most important and can be a most rewarding personal experience for academics. Not only in that it makes it easier to find maybe funding or later a publisher and audience for one's work that reaches out beyond your own discipline, but also and especially because it provides really purpose in the best sense of the word for your work beyond the academic. Interesting. And um, Alex, how would you define this idea of the interested questioner? What would that look like? Okay, so as I mentioned before, I borrowed this idea from Seymour Mandelbaum. Um, and I think it's the idea that there is, that your research question isn't just something that comes, um, I guess, from within you. Although clearly your own kind of, your perspectives and agendas and concerns are part of that. But there are questioners out there. There are people who have a stake in whatever your field might be. And I think to think, to, to recognise that there is someone whose questions and concerns and priorities are legitimate, there's something that you yourself can, can draw on and incorporate into the way you frame your own research questions, is quite a useful check or perhaps not a check, but quite a useful way to expand or to challenge or to um, enrich your own research question formulation. So to recognise there are audiences and users out there who I think have a legitimate interest in um, the research that you pursue. Um, and I think it's, as I said, I think it's about um, enriching, I suppose, the, the potential research that you can do uh, by taking into account those 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 wider perspectives. And, and I would echo um, what uh, Marcus has just said, I think it is hugely enjoyable and personally and professionally rewarding to bring those other groups into your into your research process. Mm -hmm. um, the new kind of networks and contacts that you make really just open your mind in ways that you would never experience if you just are engaging professionally at conferences and professional networks mm -hmm. that are for your particular field or discipline. I think that's a, that's a really interesting point to to make. Um, so what advice, starting with Marcus, uh, well, I guess maybe not even so much advice, but what do you think keeps academics, despite the possibility of networking and being able to enrich research, et cetera, et cetera, what do you think keeps academics from engaging with non-academic environments, uh, especially within this context that we're talking about today? So, well... I think there is no one singular reason why academics have a certain reservation to engage with non-academic uh, environments. But I think rather there is maybe a set of reasons, but, but maybe two I would think are, are particularly important. On the one hand, simply academia still enjoys the reputation of not only being a privileged working environment in which one can pursue one's own genuine interests, maybe better than in other areas, but also a field with a clear 
work ethic driven by the noble aim to understand and explain the world and society and maybe search for truth in one way or another. And it is hence also understandable why academics um, feel attached to their profession, even if career prospects might not be the best and the precariousness of academic jobs obvious for everyone. Mm -hmm. Another reason, however, I see also that there is a certain trend in academia that despite much talk of inter and transdisciplinarity, we seem to go to ever more disciplinarity in, in our academic fields. So the need to focus on specific elements of one's own field and in order to become a real expert. And um, this may make it also more difficult to think beyond the boundary of one's own discipline, let alone outside academia, and keep people from even uh, considering alternatives. Mm, that's interesting. Um, Alex, what do you think? Yeah, I, I would agree there. I think the incentives in terms of um, academic uh, recruitment and progression and esteem are still very much uh, in that traditional mould in terms of uh, the production of um, academic uh, you know, monographs and journal articles, the presentation of conferences, um, membership of um, scholarly associations, um, uh, journal, you know, editorial uh, board roles and external reviewing. And although that is changing, and I think this is one of actually one of the positive impacts of impact is to direct uh, attention and funding and esteem towards more um, uh, kind of public or kind of applied or engaged type roles. I still think there's probably um, a kind of a, a sense that those activi activities are important, but they are peripheral. So um, it's fine for you to go out and to engage with the local community history group as mm. long as you've got your publications back. Um, it's fine to um, uh, to produce a short film uh, working in collaboration with a local museum, uh, but only if you um, have um, uh, been awarded a you know, research grant. So um, I think there is an issue that there is no parity of esteem still between what you could call which I think is actually a fiction, but between kind of pure academic history, if you like, and kind of public or applied history mm. on the other side. Yeah. And I think also there is unfortunately a gender dimension to this, which is it is often, uh, and you'll see this certainly in the, the public history profession in the US, which is, um, you know, is, is largely a feminized profession, is that some of these kind of more academic service type or public engagement type roles um, have fallen, well, have been taken on by women. Um, and that has, I think, um, allowed um, <laughs> certain more conventional parts of the academic discipline to somewhat dismiss those as, as being, you know, um, of lesser importance, of le lesser status uh, or significance um, than, um, you know, this production of kind of quite specialist uh, academic publications. And mm -hmm. um, I think that's unfortunate because actually these this kind of work is hugely demanding. It's demanding intellectually and it's demanding on a whole range of professional and personal skills. So um, I think it's a, it's a fictional divide, but it's, not, it's nonetheless a kind of rather pervasive um, and, and powerful one that, that seems to be um, still has an influence, I think, on how people think about these, this kind of work. Well, I think, and I, I realize I'm, I am going to be very controversial about this, but, you know, it is what it is. Um, I think one of the things that is quite challenging, and I say this having been in academia, even, you know, as a research student or what have you, it's, it's a bit challenging when you have these expectations of, as you said, you need to write in certain 
so to speak, recognized journals, or you need to have published in X, Y, and Z and had peer review, et cetera, et cetera. And the thing that I find is a, is a hard pill to swallow is that you can work and work and work towards these specific journals. But at the end of the day, most people aren't going to read them. So you're mm-hmm. writing journal articles essentially for a very empty audience or a very, 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 very specific audience. And it could be, you know, a couple people at the end of the day until maybe your name gets cropped up later on in a classroom syllabus or what have you. Whereas if you're working for something that has more public engagement, you could be dealing with hundreds of people overnight. And you think of that incentive to know that I'm putting in this time, but I know that it's going to reach a much bigger group of people and hopefully have more impact in the sense that all of this effort is going towards the greater good. I think it can be quite difficult to try to stick down that traditional path when you feel like you're coming up against a hurdle and you're putting in those hours and you're not sure if it's ever going to go anywhere. And I was wondering if um, you had any opinions with regards to that. Well, I, I mean, I don't think they're necessarily mutually exclusive. So just to give you an example from my recent project, um, which was to do with, um, which was working with the John Lewis Archives, which is a very big uh, and well-known um, retail chain in the United Kingdom. Um, I was working, the, the project was co-designed with the archivist and it was focused on um, the history of pay policy in the partnership. And that came about because um, the director of personnel's office were very interested in how the company had weathered previous periods of kind of financial uncertainty and adversity. And so we turned to the archives to try and look, to, we looked at the late 1970s to, um, to try and explore the kind of policy that the company had pursued. Now, yes, I can present the results of my research to the director of personnel's office, which I did. And so you're immediately reaching that wider audience. And I've shot a short film, which will go out to thousands of partners. But they also wanted the academic journal article because that gives it a kind of credibility or quality assurance, if you want to call it that, that the results that I shared with them in the more accessible format was underpinned by research that had passed through the rigors of peer review. Mm. So although you might say that, okay, only a a certain number of British historians are going to read that journal article, Mm. It actually provided all the underpinning kind of evidence and assurance to my public audience, if you like, within the company, that what I shared with them had integrity. So in that sense, the academic publication and the applied or public history work kind of went together. It wasn't, they weren't mutually exclusive. So they kind of, they supported each other and they kind of sat together, if you like, as products, um, complementary products, if you like. Well, and I suppose the other thing as well, and I think it's really good that you point that out, is that I think when you go through that rigorous process, you know at the end of the day, not only have you done your best and you've put in the hours and the time and what have you, but as you said, the people who are going to review are there to make sure that the best type of quality comes out and that it's reviewed from the best possible angle. So as you said, when you give it to somebody who might not be in that academic setting, they know based on your experience and the sort of world that you work in that the quality is going to be very high, in which case they might be less inclined to question the material that you've provided them because you have that particular type of proof. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, exactly. And I think I think from the archivist's point of view, what she was keen to show to her colleagues 
in the director of personnel's office was that that was the level of rigor and um, integrity you get when you work with an academic as opposed to bringing in an external consultant. So one of the arguments, I suppose, for these kinds of academic collaborations with archives is that you get a, a product or a, an output that has a level of kind of, um, uh, of scholarly, um, has kind of scholarly credentials, if you like, Whereas if you bring in an external consultancy, you're not going to get that added value. You're going to get your own materials and your own staff expertise played back to you, perhaps in a lovely, visually appealing, um, you know, kind of uh, format that's familiar to business readers. But it doesn't give you that added value. And I think that was the kind of proof of concept, if you like, of our project, was how you get something that's business relevant, <laughs> but has the integrity of scholarly work behind it. Excellent. Uh, Marcus, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, clearly I would also agree that both academic publications and such that are um, maybe have a broader audience in mind um, are there in their own right and they, they are indeed also complementary. But um, I should also say that for me, clearly also the way or the direction in which publications are going in academia was a very frustrating experience for me because it, it seems a bit odd you know it's it's more and more that quantity counts you're expected to produce um, a certain number of publications in a certain period of time they should ideally be um, in peer-reviewed high quality journals at the same time you 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 cannot but think that if everyone is so busy writing um, articles, who is ever going to read them? And if, if you trust um, some um, new studies, there is a high percentage of, of articles, even in such high impact journals, that are only read by the peer reviewers. And you ask yourself, of course, I mean, all the time and effort for essentially the peer reviews that only do it also because that too is considered part of the academic business. Um, it seems to be a bit of a sobering um, experience. But what is was interesting for me to learn also now and more in the policy context that some colleagues also coming from uh, academia in my team, they were also a bit scared suddenly to write for a wider audience. And if it's just, you know, at least a group of 750 uh, members of parliament, but suddenly being exposed also to potential criticism, um, having a much wider audience, you know, it, it, it was also for them, well, but what do I do if I get criticized? So sometimes it shows, however, maybe the deficits also of the academic world that you don't get much of feedback anyway, but it gives you a little bit peace of mind too. So it means you have to be prepared that maybe you are confronted with tougher criticism than you might be in academia, even for that can, of course, also happen in academia. Um, but so overall, I would I would also say it's it's definitely worth doing it, but you have to also to be prepared doing it in the sense of going to or aiming for wider audiences. Excellent. Um, and before we end, I'd just like to ask one more question to the two of you. What advice would each of you give to academics who are uncertain about how to redefine their work so that it has greater meaning and application to the world outside of just the academy? Uh, Marcus, could we start with you? Sure. So I think what maybe the advice I would give is try to understand for yourself how your research may relate to current societal or other challenges in the world. 
other aspects in my re research that may help to address these challenges? And if so, could I strengthen these aspects in my research without necessarily doing something totally different? Is there an audience outside academia that may be perceptive to my research results or at least parts of my research and are there perhaps possibilities to well translate under inverted commas my academic research results for other purposes but i guess my central advice would be rather straightforward and simple dare to try and be prepared to fail at times we must simply be ready to leave our respective comfort zones that's excellent advice and alex how about yourself all i can add to that really is to say um, is to go out and, and listen. Um, it's very hard from within our own, the confines of our own practice, um, confines of our own campus, to really understand what the most pressing needs and priorities or interests of those audiences might be. And I think we need to go out and ask and to listen, be prepared to be in those contexts which aren't our own. So um, to read um, the publications those audiences are reading or producing themselves, mm. to go to their conferences and workshops, to uh, to be prepared to not be the expert for a while, to be the person who listens mm. and reflects and learns from that and to build partnerships and uh, relationships uh, from there. Because um, if we want our research to be, um, to be usable, to be relevant, to be... Um, accessible to those groups we need to understand their languages we need to um be prepared to um as marcus mentioned so you know trans to translate our findings into terms that that work for them and that means i think sometimes decentering ourselves so rather than seeing ourselves as mm -hmm. the academic expert with something to tell is actually to work alongside to talk with um to share with those groups so that our research really is part of their discussions rather than just given to them. So I think a certain amount of humility is also part of this process. Mm. Mm, thank you. Well, uh, that's it from us at Coffee and Cocktails with your host, Dr. Anne Wand. I'd like to thank again, Dr. Alex Green and Dr. Marcus Poch for joining us at the studio this afternoon. For those of you who've enjoyed the show, please feel free to explore our Facebook page at Coffee and Cocktails 1, as well as our blog at coffeeandcocktails1.wordpress.com. Or you can find us on Instagram at Coffee and Cocktails Podcast, where you can learn more about upcoming episodes. Otherwise, that's it for now. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Bye.